Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. In today's conversation, I talked to Ivy Gray, a legal tech entrepreneur, writer, and former practicing lawyer. Her work on technology, competence, ethics, and innovation has made her a respected thought leader in legal tech. She's been recognized as a Fast Case 50 honoree and was recently named a Women of Legal Tech by the ABA Legal Technology Resource Center. Currently, Ivy is Vice President of Strategy and Business Development for WordRake, which is editing software for professionals. Ivy writes and speaks frequently about change management and legal technology implementation. Ivy went from anthropology and journalism to bankruptcy law, showed an algorithm to choose a law school, and talks about how swing dancing influenced her major life decisions. It was an eclectic and delightful conversation that I hope you enjoy. I'm joined today by Ivy Gray of WordRake. Ivy, it's so nice to meet you and thank you for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, we're delighted to have you. I'm a huge fan as well. I'm looking forward to talking about WordRake and Perfect It and all the cool stuff you're doing. But first, let's talk about how an anthropology major became a Fast Case 50 influential woman of tech superstar. So you're, you're an anthropology major and you start by going into journalism, if I've got that right. Uh, somewhat. So I doubled in journalism and anthropology. Uh, okay. So I was already a bit of a weird split and I love the study of people. The anthro major was tacked on because I just kept taking so many anthropology classes that it made sense to simply get the major while I was at it. But my plan was to be a journalist because I love words and I love the stories that you can tell with words and how you can influence people. I fell into anthropology because that gave me a deeper understanding of how communities created meaning from the words and the stories that they told. So they really are connected. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I don't think of there being a lot of joint anthropology journalism majors out there, but there's a very interesting connection between the two. Absolutely. You see a lot of sociology majors who become journalists or public relations people. And sociology is more internal, whereas anthropology is more about cultural change. And I like to look at that cultural shift. Now, once I've said that, it becomes clear how I wound up in bankruptcy and doing change management. <laughs> so it all starts to make sense. It does actually. Studying people and motivation. It, it, it does actually begin <laughs> to make a lot, a, a lot of sense. You started off, you spent 10 years as journalism and, and PR, right? That's correct. So I wanted to be a journalist. I dreamt of being a journalist. And as a Black family growing up in California, we were glued to any major Black news issues, studying the or watching the O.J. Simpson trial, watching the trial of the police officers with Rodney King. And we would debate what was happening and how the media was covering it at our kitchen table. And I took that to mean that I should become a journalist. 
And when I looked back at that, I thought, maybe I drew the wrong conclusion. (laughs) Maybe that means that I should become a lawyer uh, because I care deeply about facts and how they're presented and how we reach our conclusions. So when you look at the through line of the decisions I've made, they do make sense from there. Anyhow, so I loved telling stories. I loved words. I come from a family of polyglots. And so they all think deeply about words and what they mean. And um, they're adept with words. So it made sense that I wanted to be a journalist. And then I got my dream job covering the Democratic National Convention. Oh, my. And I realized the PR people make the news. (laughs) Journalists don't make the news. And I wanted to be able to control those stories and make those stories. So I changed directions and went into PR so I could be the person who made the stories. Ah, a little control coming out there. (laughs) That's great. And then you, you did PR for a while and then you go to law school. Yes. I've seen you tell this story about how you didn't go to law school out of any long burning desire to be I think the analogy used was Atticus Finch and what I what I saw from you. Correct. But out of this uh, assessment of your own skills, which is such an interesting way to think about it. Absolutely. I I wanted to do lots of research and writing and high stakes work. And I wanted to be project based where you do something intensely and then you move on. And I looked for somewhere where I could use that skill set and law was perfect. And it turned out to be a good choice, but I could still continue my path from there. Right. You went to the University of Houston, I think, for law school. That's correct. What's a West Coast citizen doing going to the state of Texas? Well, Houston was a great experience for me in a number of ways. First, they gave me a scholarship and gave me a lot of opportunity. And um, I wrote an algorithm to figure out the best worst case scenario for law school. And Houston wait, was wait, it. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait you know, you're not just going to slip that one past. You wrote an algorithm to assess what? what? The best worst case scenario. So... If I turned out not to be good at law school, how could I still do well? What city did I need to be in where they were recruiting from schools that weren't in the top 14? Where could I afford to live even if I lost my scholarship? What were the cut points for when I needed to drop out of law school if I wasn't doing well enough? How likely was it that I would actually meet those cut points, etc.? So I put in all of those factors and weighted them and wrote an algorithm. And from the 27 schools that I got into, Houston was the best worst case scenario where even if it all went poorly, I could still be okay. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Have you thought about monetizing that algorithm? That's that's sort of incredible. Oh, it's on a computer that doesn't even exist anymore. That that was what, 2003, 2004. Oh, my uh, goodness. I, I am so many computers past that now. <laughs> I guess that was, you, grew, you must have grown up in, you grew up in Silicon Valley, yeah? Yes, yes, I did. And building things and analyzing things is just a way of life when you're a Silicon Valley kid. You think nothing of it. <laughs> So you, you, you go to Houston and then you uh, you graduate having done extremely well and you go to Davis Wright in Portland, yeah? Yes, yes. What took you to uh, Portland? So 
Let's back up on Houston for just a little bit. I think it's important for who I am to mention that one of the things that I was looking for when I was going to law school was not just to go to a good school, but to go somewhere where it was common for there to be black professionals. And there were enough of us that I could be a black professional in any way that I wanted to be. I could be true to myself and didn't have to fit within a box. And Houston gave me that opportunity. And under Dean Tennessee's leadership, I felt empowered to be whoever I wanted to be as a lawyer. And that was really important. So I just wanted to cram that in. Mm -hmm. No, it's great. That's not always the case with uh, graduate schools. Absolutely. So I was lucky to find that and have it line up with my algorithm. So I love the algorithm. I just love that. <laughs> uh, so Portland, I fell in love with Portland because I am an avid swing dancer and blues dancer. And Portland had a great scene for partner dance. And I wanted to continue my hobby while still practicing law. And Portland gave me an opportunity to do that. It had a great community and people who would rally around me. Sometimes when people move, they move for a church or they move for some other community so that they won't be alone when they arrive. And for me, dancing is that community I look for to make sure that I won't be alone when I arrive. And Portland had that. On top of it, Davis Wright Tremaine just had some of the smartest lawyers I'd ever encountered. They're a great law firm. Oh, great law firm. Innovative, smart about how they use technology, smart about how they approach cases, really on the same team with their clients. And I wanted to be part of that. So it was an easy decision to join Davis Wright Tremaine at Portland. That's fabulous. Then you're in Portland for a while. Then you decide, well, I need to be in the Big Apple, right? <laughs> It sounded a lot like that. Um, so like any junior lawyer who is doing pretty well, they get greedy, they get hungry, and they start dreaming of all of the big things they think they should be able to do. And I was dreaming of the cases that you could get if you lived in New York. So, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yes, yes. So I asked around and I said, well, what's the best path to get to the type of work that I want to do? The type of bankruptcy cases that you read about in the Wall Street Journal. I want that to be my life. And they said, well, you can move to New York without a job and hope, but no one from New York is going to look at somebody from Portland. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, or they said, you could do an LLM to place yourself in New York and build those connections. And that was the route that I took. And I did very well in my LLM program and wound up with offers from a lot of places. People would come in and guest speak and make an offer to me afterwards because I was that irritating student who just couldn't stop interjecting and challenging everyone. This is also a through line in my life. I am annoying and curious to a fault or to a plus, depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think curiosity is a is an important trait in the profession. We don't talk about it a lot, but being curious is what leads people to do interesting and different and unique things. I think, and it's it's interesting you 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 raise that as a characteristic of yourself because that's uh, I think important. I think curiosity is actually the foundation of innovation. If you aren't curious, you're not going to solve the right problems and the solutions that you come up with are not going to be very deep. If it's easy and if it's obvious, then you're not going very far and you're not changing very much. You need to 
get at the root of the problem and come up with a different way to solve it. You have to zig when others zag and curiosity gives you the ability to do that. It does. And and it's a trait that lawyers sometimes have beaten out of them because we're so we're trained to be risk adverse. We're trained to look for the downside for everything. And it it makes it difficult to be curious at the same time because accepting risk is part of what curiosity brings. It's the zigging when others are zagging that you don't know where the zig is going to take you. Yes. And, you know, that actually leads to another good point. There's so much fear in legal practice and it causes us to not look for opportunities when we should be looking for opportunities. We're instead paralyzed by fear. You know as well as anybody that the practice of law is either feast or famine. When we are feasting, we are so busy that we can't stop to assess how we can do work better. And you know, we're just trying to survive. And even if you had a good idea, no one wants to hear it because they're just trying to make the deadline and get through it. And when you're in famine mode, most people don't step back and think, all right, well, I have all this free time. How can I be more efficient? The last thing they're thinking is, how can I be more efficient? They're thinking, how can I bill more? What can I squeeze out? And that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing with that free time. We spend our time instead freaking out over where those next billable hours are going to come from. So we get stuck in this rut of doing the wrong things and doing the wrong things slowly forever. And it makes it really hard to make change or to consider other ways to work. No, that that's absolutely right. And the incentives in the profession are not aligned necessarily with that either. Correct. Which is one of the reasons why I talk so much about the duty of technology competence, which is the duty to use the tools of the trade well. And that's for the business and practice of law. And for me, it's important not just to talk about using technology well, but how that intersects with the rest of our ethical duties, because it doesn't really matter if you talk about it in a vacuum. You need to think about why people haven't done this already. If it was easy, they would have done it, right? If it was appealing, they would have done it. So I think about why they haven't. And I think that there is this notion that efficiency and billing are at cross purposes. But with model rule 1.5, which is the duty to bill fairly, you realize they're not at cross purposes. You shouldn't be churning bills anyway. And incompetent use of technology is churning. It's systematically stealing. And no one wants to say that. I, I don't think you actually can say that until you're outside of a law firm environment. You know, you, you start speaking up and saying that and you're going to get fired real fast. <laughs> but if you slowly bring up the idea that maybe that work wasn't billable anyway, that work that you're trying to protect maybe isn't billable because it doesn't involve legal judgment, then you see that you build on that for a few years and you convince people that they're not actually going to lose anything if they use their technology better. Their lives are going to get better. Their work is going to get better. They're going to produce something that they're proud of. And they're going to create relationships with clients where the clients look to you as a trusted advisor, not as somebody just trying to squeeze out more fees. And our ethics rules are designed to make you that trusted advisor, not to make you a fee generator. I agree 100%. But doesn't that bump up against the fear factor you were talking about earlier? It does. It does. And that's part of the reason why I often talk about this phenomenon called ethical fading when I talk about 
you know, legal ethics and technology competence. And ethical fading is one of those things that we really use to protect ourselves. We use it and it allows people who have kind of questionable business judgment to bring everybody else down and desensitize them to the ethical choices that they're making. So ethical fading is the phenomenon where you put distance between yourself and the ethical decisions that you're making, and you recategorize them as business decisions that have no impact on your ethical judgment. And you believe that you know, you're just using euphemisms, you're churning, you're feather bedding, you're, you're padding bills. And that allows you to maintain this sense of self where you are okay, you are ethical, you are good. And the more people who do that around you, the less sensitive to those decisions you become. But that isn't how it actually works. You're still making ethical decisions regardless of what you call them. And our billing structures and our incentives encourage us to put our heads in the sand and keep making those choices. And then we're rewarded for making those choices. And we really need to face that head on. And I think that I've been speaking about this for enough years now that people are starting to change how they see the interconnectedness of ethics rules. And I'm really excited because malpractice insurers are also starting to say some of the things that I've been saying for years. And at the end of the day, I think that judges, fee examiners, and malpractice insurers are really going to be the ones who have the power to change how lawyers use technology. We've spent 10 years hoping that the change will come from some internal source. And I think it's time to recognize that that internal impetus isn't coming. We need an external impetus. And those are the people who can do it. Yeah, I think the other um, impetus for change from external sources are those alternative legal service providers that are, whether they be big four, whether they be the axioms of the world, who have structured their business differently than law firms and who are who use technology and process more ingrained in their culture. So I think that if we were all rational operators, that should make more of a difference and actually make us question our business practices. But instead, we mostly just get more fear and anger. And so we dig in and we become more protective and we believe even stronger in lawyer exceptionalism. And we think, oh, well, those other guys, they're just, they don't understand us. They're not like us. And we try really hard to keep others out. And I think you're seeing a lot of that in the in the industry now where some lawyers who see that are trying to tear down those walls and you're seeing a lot more sandboxes pop up. But as the sandboxes pop up, you get more lawyer outrage where they don't want to change. They they want to enact more and more rules to keep people out so that they can thrive through exclusion rather than thrive by being the best. It's an interesting dynamic in the profession, isn't it? Or we're, we're at an interesting moment. It is. It is. Yes. And I, I hope we can overcome it and, and make change. But I think that we've reached the point where we have to realize that we're not going to make that change ourselves. The, uh, the issue of change in the way people utilize technology must be part of your, your, your bread and butter on a daily basis, given your role at WordRake. Absolutely. And I'm curious, you talked about lawyer exceptionalism, and I want to follow up on that a little bit because you must deal with that every day. You have to deal with, first off, for our listeners here in a second, I'll have you explain what WordRake does in case anybody doesn't know. But you must deal with the, well, I can write better than a machine. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, 
I thought that too. And Well, you do tell the story about perfected and about how this can't do it better than I can. Yes. I, do you want to hear that story? I, I can give you I a short version. I do kind of want to hear. I do kind of want to hear that story. I okay. So um, I, I talked about swing dancing and um, I usually somehow in a podcast mention my love of scotch. And uh, so those two things led me to a very good friend named Daniel Human, and he is the founder of Perfected. And in our years, being the curmudgeonly old dancers in the corner, drinking scotch and complaining about the youngins, <laughs> uh, he would tell me about his software that he'd made. And one day he said to me, well, why haven't you tried it? This is so good. I think lawyers would love it. Why haven't you tried it? And of course, I said, I don't need that. I'm perfect. Uh, <laughs> what a typical lawyer response. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that telling this story about myself and laughing about myself is an important way to break down those barriers. So he says, well, I'll make you a bet. I will buy you a bottle of your favorite scotch if you run Perfect It on your LLM dissertation and you don't find any errors. Whereas if you run it on your dissertation and you do find errors, then you have to buy me a bottle of my favorite scotch and my taste is more expensive than yours. So good luck. <laughs> so, of course, you know, I believing in my own perfection, I had to take that challenge. And guess what? I wasn't perfect. It found errors and I was embarrassed. But more than embarrassed, I could see the opportunities. The light bulb and maybe the dollar signs started flashing, mm -hmm. both of them. And instead of just admitting defeat, I went back to Daniel with a multi-page list of what I thought we could do to perfect it, to make it better for legal users. The things that lawyers would need to hear and need to see, to see that it was for them and that it could change their work in a non-threatening way. Give me an example of that. So Perfected started as a consistency checker and it would help you with capitalization and hyphenation consistency, regional spelling consistency. So O-U-R versus O-R, et cetera. And it didn't do any blue book checking. And when lawyers think of proofreading, they think of blue booking. And if it doesn't handle blue booking, then it's just off the table. The problem is that when lawyers say blue booking, some lawyers mean citation validation and some lawyers mean citation formatting. So I had to figure out where those lines were drawn and how to speak about those lines and then how to make all of those things. So now here's the other thing about me that makes me a lot like other lawyers. One, I live by rules, but I don't actually read any instructions. <laughs> Two, I think I'm perfect, but I'm also incredibly insecure. <laughs> Boy, are you a lawyer. <laughs> uh, so I knew that I couldn't just go out there and say, I know everything. Let's make a product. I wanted to find the resources that would matter most, the language that would matter most, and go through the thought process that our users would go through that would make them want to use a tool and trust the tool and offload some of their stressors onto a tool without fighting against it. And that is a unique approach to legal technology. And I think that's how I wound up on some of these lists. I wasn't just, I have an answer. I was, well, why are you resisting and how can I help you? And here's how it's going to be better, but it's not promising unicorns and ponies and rainbows. That's such an interesting approach. I do think that's unique. In the legal tech business, I mean, people come up with great ideas and they do promise unicorns and rainbows and lawyers being the cynical breed that they are. That's a tough way to make a sale. It is. It is. 
And lawyers will spend as much energy and time making a $50,000 purchase as a $50 purchase. And that can be really tough, especially when you are selling a $70 or $129 product. So you, a lot of companies want to say that they're going to give you unicorns and rainbows so that they'll have a higher price point, but it's just not accurate. And then lawyers try a few of those things and they're disillusioned. So we spend a whole lot of time in the trough of disillusionment. And I think that technologists and their marketers are responsible for that, not just lawyers. So to back up, I made sure that I knew what we did, what it fixed, and how it would actually be better. And then I worked on selling that sense of relief and making sure that it fit the price point for the tool that we were selling. And it's really important that your solution fits your price point and even possibly outpaces it. And I think that the two tools that I've worked on definitely do that. However, the hype and the major investment from other places makes that really hard right now, just to be transparent. <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's an interesting dynamic that I think you're hitting on, which is that I've seen it in the in the legal tech world a lot, which is people are entranced by the unicorns and rainbows and they overlook the power of their existing products or existing technology and how they can make what they're doing better in a very practical sense in a very reasonable way. It's not doesn't have that pizzazz, it doesn't have that, you know, magic to it, yet it produces much more results. Yes. You know, the thing that saves you five minutes every day is going to be more useful than the thing that saves you five hours every other year that you maybe may never use. And I think that we are just so excited about the hype that we totally forget about these other things, what I call unsexy legal tech. You know, learn to use your tools better and you'll get something from it every single day. And then once that becomes the norm, then you take the next step. It's compounding and it's amazing. I'm not going to promise people that using a tool like WordRig or Perfectit will mean that they are home by 6 p.m. every day and having dinner, you know, a homemade dinner with their kids and their family. But even if you could go home at midnight or 10 p.m., uh, speaking as a big law lawyer, that would be amazing. You know, I, I used to dream of the things that I would trade to be able to leave the office by 10 p.m. consistently. And a tool like WordRig or a tool like Perfectit can actually make that a reality. And it can give you the reset that you need at the end of each day so that you actually do come to work with a fresh mind and ready to think rather than kind of hungover from the day that you worked before. Tell us about WordRake. What is the product and what's your role at the company? So I love WordRake. I used it for my last three years of practice before joining the team. The short version is that WordRig is a clear and concise editor originally designed for lawyers. It produces its editing suggestions in the familiar track changes form. And then you go through and you accept or reject those changes. We don't make any changes behind the scenes. We don't surprise you. You have to make an active choice every time. WordRig offers about 35,000 edits, though about 3 million are possible, which is pretty exciting. And I think that it gets to the heart of what lawyers are looking for, clarity and brevity. So it will help you cut legalese, find those cumbersome phrases, check for 
any cliches or winding sentences, throat clearings, legal, you know, the jargon that lawyers throw in there, you know, they just sprinkle it on thinking they sound sophisticated. And it turns out that nobody wants that. So WordRig will ripple through your document and suggest edits to make your writing clearer and more concise. And then once you're done accepting the changes, you go through and you look at it again. We are a collaborator with you. We don't expect to replace you. And I think that if when I had been introduced to editing and proofreading software for lawyers, someone had said to me, it's a collaborator. It's not going to replace what you do. It's going to enhance what you do. My answer probably wouldn't have been, I don't need that. I'm perfect. I would have thought, yeah, I'll take all the help I can get. And so that's the approach that I try to take with WordRake. So what do I do there? <laughs> well, hang on, hang on a question about the, before we get to what you do, a question about the program itself. I assume it's, it's, it's run off of algorithms. It's run off of a machine learning program. Does it learn from a particular user? It does not. So WordRake has a series of patented algorithms and those algorithms are context driven and based on parts of speech, which makes WordRake incredible at giving you a high number of highly accurate editing suggestions. It's not limited by the creator's imagination where you have a list of things and terms where it's trying to match. Instead, we know what words can fit what part of speech, etc. And so you get flexibility and precision, and it's incredibly fruitful and useful, which I love. However, WordRake does not use machine learning. Everything is created by a team of linguists and actual programmers. And then I come in as a subject matter expert and tweak everything with the linguists and recognize those patterns. We don't use machine learning because of confidentiality. To use machine learning, we have to collect the information that you put into your documents. That information needs to be stored somewhere. That information is confidential information. Your documents contain important things about your clients. And even your precedent documents contain important information about the client you had before that. So you don't really want a machine learning tool. You want a tool that is growing and developing based on patterns and conversations and user feedback that's voluntarily given, not information that is involuntarily harvested. So we take that feedback and I read a ridiculous number of uh, linguistics papers about what makes a sentence confusing and cognitive psychology papers about how do we parse language and how, how do we get through things and what makes us stuck? What is our method of editing and revising so that I can anticipate problems and work with the linguists and the programmers to build those in to WordRake? It was probably a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> no, I, I, my, my reaction was that sounds incredible to me and how you, how you created it. It's sort of turning your way of thinking your brain into a computer, which is pretty awesome, really. Uh, I love it. And one of the things that I love about joining WordRake is that Gary Kinder, who is our founder, he's the legal writing instructor. He's the brilliant mind who can tell you what's good legal writing. And I don't have to make that claim. And I don't want to make that claim. Again, I'm highly insecure. And there are plenty of people on Twitter who are happy to step up and say, no, 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 you're not a good writer. <laughs> oh, yes, there are. There are. Yes, many. Uh, so... I love that WordRake existed and had all of these great ideas and that I can come in and add to it and refine it. And I can use so much technology and research and study to examine why people make errors and how I can correct those errors so that I can build on that. 
And I can confidently point to the research and say, this is why we changed it. This is why that edit is correct. And when somebody writes in and says, I don't like that suggestion, I can say, oh, really? Well, Brian Garner section this says blah, blah, blah. And I can justify why things are in the product. And I think that's important for making sure that a product really works for you and isn't just the founder's idea of what good writing is. And I think that my insecurity about my own writing abilities uh, means that I will always tie it to some sort of real advice that's been legitimized and backed up with peer-reviewed research before I put it in there and put my name on it. No, that sounds that sounds fabulous. What else do you do at WordRake, if, if that's not enough? Did we cover <laughs> your role at WordRake? Oh, not at all. I have maybe seven or ten jobs. Uh, so. <laughs> Tell us a few of them. Uh, So my official title is Vice President of Strategy and Business Development. And strategy is exciting because it's all encompassing. I look at product direction, marketing, business positioning, hiring, everything about what makes a business tick and makes a business successful, which is perfect because as a former corporate bankruptcy and restructuring lawyer, thinking about businesses, why they work, why they don't is what I do. I love the creativity of it and I love the challenge. Now, that's not to say that Rake is unsuccessful or something. It just means that I take that approach. <laughs> no, I, I understand. I understand. So I take that strategic approach to where we're going as a company, how we fare in the marketplace, and how lawyers and other professional users react to our product. And I'm constantly adjusting that. It's exciting. Then I get to be the subject matter expert, which is what I was talking about earlier with working with the linguists. And I write the marketing copy and I do the thought leadership, which is kind of fun. And then I also do things like design some of the new buttons. When I come up with a new feature, I'm the person who designs the button that goes on the ribbon. That's cool. It's kind of exciting. You know, and I, I design the interface for the report and I think about who's using it. What are they looking for? What is their point of need? How are they feeling when they click this button? And that all comes from my weirdo anthro background and my tech support background. And I get to put that all into the product. So this is the place for me in terms of using every skill that everyone thought was just too random for one person to have. And I love the opportunity. That's fantastic. We're running out of time, but just give me a sense for where, as the VP of strategy, where is WordRake going How do you see it evolving as a company and as a product over the next few years? So WordRake was designed specifically for lawyers by lawyers, as they like to say. But I think that WordRake works for any person who writes professionally and must communicate complex information to users who have less information than they do. So I see WordRake as expanding into a broader audience, obviously keeping legal audience as its core. I see expanding the functionality and as we better diagram some of the linguistic complexities of how lawyers write, we'll be able to fix those things. So I see that happening. I'm really excited about it. And the linguists get emails from me at 3 a.m. about it. Uh, (laughs) That must be less exciting for them. Uh, well, they actually get excited about it too. So I, I think that we're a company that's excited to work together and move the product forward. And then I, I think that we're going to just become a more important core part of writing workflow for lawyers and any other business people. And I think one of the keys there is that we also work in Outlook. As more of our writing, just our general R, shifts to email, I think that more people will see 
that to communicate appropriately and effectively, you must edit your emails as much as you would edit a letter. And being one of the only tools that works in Outlook, which is where lawyers do their email writing, I think that we're going to see much more traction and development there. And I'm super excited because I never want to read another bad winding email again. And I look forward to uh, to changing that in the legal world. I'm going to have to go back and look at the emails I've sent you. <laughs> now, you now you're hitting my insecurity button. No, no, your emails were good. They they were clear. They had you know, good spacing, use of space so I could understand and group. Uh, you followed all of the rules about chunking information. So well done. Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I was freaking out there a little bit. Uh, Ivy, we're, we're out of time. It's been so lovely talking to you. I, I could keep this conversation going much longer, but I want to be mindful of your time and the listener's time. It's been fascinating. You, you've had such an interesting and unique journey. It's been great to watch from the outside, and I know you got continue to do great things. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This is one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had. Such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.